It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. Burn Kelly gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to Pages and Popcorn Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be taking a slight departure from our normal format and do a nonfiction book. This is only the second time that Pages and Popcorn Podcast has done a nonfiction book. And the last time we did a nonfiction book, I was lucky enough to be joined by in studio in the time we were in the same room together with my very good friend, Chris Jarvis. And we did, and the band played on for World AIDS Day two years ago listen to that episode. It's really good. Today, Chris is not in my office or my living room. He's in his own little man cave over there, but he's back to talk about Nomadland with me today. So I'm very excited about that. But before we get into it, just real quick, a reminder that you can find all of our back catalog of episodes and our show notes and our resources and our links and all kinds of fun, wonderful things at kmmamedia.com. Just click on the pages and popcorn link right up at the top. And if you're doing your holiday shopping, as it is the holiday time of the year, we have a couple of items in our store and there is a link to the store also at kmmamedia.com. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. Technically, although to be honest, I don't really do Twitter because Twitter scares me. So um, I'm also on TikTok. I do a book review blog and I talk about books every week as well. So those are all the places. And of course, you can email us at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. And that's the end of my intro. And I sped through it real fast because I have so much to talk about with you today, Chris, and I'm very excited. Not only are we going to talk about Nomadland, but I actually interviewed somebody who lives this lifestyle. So I'm going to put that in into the episode a little bit later. So here we go. Welcome back, Chris. You want to say hi? I love being here. Love it. (laughs) Being here. And by here, he means his man cave talking. (laughs) (laughs) I would hope you love being there. Okay. So nomad land. It's a nonfiction book, so it has a subtitle. So Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century, is a 2017 nonfiction book by American journalist Jessica Bruder about the phenomenon of older Americans who, following the Great Recession from 2007 to 2009, adopted transient lifestyles traveling around the United States in search of seasonal work. Here is the book recap. The book braids together the stories of several people that Bruder follows over the course of three years while incorporating historical and social context for their decision to live out of a mobile home. Bruder travels to meet up with the book's main subject, Linda May, in California at her seasonal job working as a campground host where she earns just above minimum wage. Bruder had initially learned about downwardly mobile older Americans who decide to live out in their RVs, vans, and cars in the middle of a reporting story, so now she follows Linda as the central protagonist throughout the book. Linda tells Bruder her story and the many jobs she's worked over the years, which despite her best efforts, have still left her struggling financially. She learns about van dwelling through blogger Bob Wells' website, CheaperRVLiving.com, and decides to buy an RV to travel in. That's Linda May, by the way, not Jessica. By studying the economic shifts and jobless recovery post-2008 recession, Bruder uncovers how the middle-class life people like Linda once relied upon is disappearing as the nation's wealth gap grows. 
Linda is just one of many Americans unable to retire due to financial losses, the decrease in private pensions, and cuts to Social Security. The Social Security, remember, is a Depression-era social ideal, and it has evolved from being viewed as a handout rather than as a means to support older Americans. Linda's retirement dream is to build a sustainable house called an Earthship where she can live permanently. Many nomads, like Linda, work as seasonal employees at Amazon warehouses throughout a program called Camper Force. Despite their old age and medical issues, many work these jobs for little money in order to survive. Bruder follows Linda during her first grueling and relentless season as a Camper Force employee in an Amazon fulfillment center. After the holiday season, she and Bruder travel to Quartzsite, Arizona, home of the annual Rubber Tramp Rendezvous in a town known to be friendly for low-income retirement age nomads seeking warm weather during the wintertime. Bruder meets a number of other nomads reporting their stories and how their experiences as van dwellers has shifted and changed over time. Bruder decides to buy and outfit her own van to better understand Linda as well as her other subjects. She quickly realizes that van dwelling is not easy or intuitive, and it comes with many challenges. In addition, Bruder works as both a camper force worker and a sugar beet harvester. At both jobs, she is subjected to the same physically demanding and somewhat dangerous work older Americans are forced to sign up for in order to support themselves. Of course, in her case, she knows that it's temporary and is like, fuck this shit, and quits. Older van dwellers eventually run into obstacles as they age. New laws begin to crack down on houseless van dwellers, making it more difficult for folks like Linda to live out of their vehicles. Linda is concerned for her family and her own health and decides to buy a piece of inexpensive land in Arizona. When she's unable to go view the land as planned, Bruder visits for her, reports back what she finds. When Bruder returns home to Brooklyn, she finds herself noticing more mobile homes and van dwellers all around the neighborhood. At the same time, the book ends with Linda beginning to build her dream home. So that came out in 2017. And then Nomadland is a 2020 American drama film written for the screen, produced, edited, and directed by Chloe Zhao, based on the 2009 fiction book that I just talked about. The film stars Frances McDormand, who's also a producer of the film. A number of real-life nomads appear as the fictionalized versions of themselves, including Linda May, Swanky, and Bob Wells. Here is our movie recap. In 2011, Fern, Frances McDormand, loses her job after the U.S. gypsum plant in Empire, Nevada shuts down. She'd worked there for years along with her husband, who recently died. So Fern sells most of her belongings and purchases a van to live in and travel the country searching for work. She takes a seasonal job at an Amazon fulfillment center through the winter. Linda, a friend and co-worker, invites Fern to visit a desert rendezvous in Arizona organized by Bob Wells, which provides a support system and community for fellow nomads. Fern initially declines, but changes her mind as the weather turns cold and she struggles to find work in the area. There, Fern meets fellow nomads and learns basic survival self-sufficiency skills for the road. When Fern's van blows a tire, she visits the van of a nearby nomad named Swanky to ask for a ride into town to buy a spare. Swanky, who'd put a pirate flag on her van so as not to be disturbed, chastises Fern for not being prepared and then invites her to learn more road survival skills and they become good friends. Swanky tells Fern about her cancer diagnosis and shortened life expectancy and her plan to make good memories on the road rather than wasted away in a hospital. They eventually part ways. Fern later takes a job as a camp host at Cedar Pass Campground in Badlands National Park, where she runs into Dave, another nomad that she had once met and danced with back in the desert community. He's working temporarily at Badlands National Park as well, but then he falls ill with diverticulitis. Fern visits him in the hospital. He's had emergency surgery. They later take restaurant jobs at Wall Drug in South Dakota. One night, Dave's son visits the restaurant, tells his father that his wife is pregnant and invites Dave to go home with him. Dave is hesitant, but Fern encourages him. Dave suggests she come with him. She declines. 
Fern takes a new job at a sugar beet processing plant, but her van breaks down and she cannot afford the repairs. Unable to borrow money, she visits her sister's family in their home in California where her sister lends her the money. She questions why Fern was never around in their lives and why Fern stayed in Empire after her husband died, and she tells Fern that Fern is brave to be so independent. Fern later visits Dave and his son's family, learning that Dave has decided to stay with them long term. He admits that he has feelings for her. He invites her to stay with him permanently as a guest, but she declines his offer and leaves a few days later, headed for the ocean. Fern returns to her seasonal Amazon job and later revisits the Arizona rendezvous. There she learns that Swanky has died. She and the other nomads pay tribute to her life by tossing stones into a campfire and Fern opens up to Bob about her loving relationship with her late husband and he shares the story of his son's suicide. Bob exposes the idea that goodbyes are not final in the nomad community as its members always promise to see each other again down the road. Sometime later, Fern returns to the newly abandoned town of Empire to dispose of the belongings that she's been keeping in a storage unit. She visits the factory and the home she once shared with her husband and then returns to the road once again. The end. So before we start our conversation, I have a couple questions for you. Okay. Had you heard of this before I mentioned it to you? Yes, I had seen the movie. I had not read the book. Oh, so you saw the movie. Cool, cool, cool. Before I saw the movie when it first came out, yeah. Hmm. Okay. I mean, not in the theater. I saw it at home. But... Right. <laughs> well, 2020. We all right. watching movies at home. Okay. Very cool. I didn't even know about it until I saw that it was nominated. And then I didn't know what it was until I saw that it was based on a book. And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, it's like, based on a nonfiction book. So then I put it on the list and here we are. I'm so glad that we picked this book to read in November because November is all about Thanksgiving for me. And Thanksgiving right. is all about being grateful for what you have. And this book yeah. made me incredibly grateful. Incredibly grateful. <laughs> Absolutely. I completely agree with you. I, like I, 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 when, I was reading, when I was reading the book and I, I, I said this to James, my husband, um, a few times while I was reading it, I'm like, I would just close the book and turn to him and say, we are so lucky because we have, we have lived and we technically now live paycheck to paycheck. I mean, if something tragic happened, you know, that ran up a huge medical bill or something, we'd be in trouble. We don't have tens of thousands of dollars in the bank, but we used to live really close to the edge when we worked at the club. And there were lots of times where we could have you know, something could have slipped and we, something bad could have happened and we would have been, and the, the, this book just pounds that into your head. Um, and then I watched the movie again last night and I was in tears. I mean, you know, one thing I, I, I think, I wish a lot of people would read this book. I think the book is better to maybe get some things into people's heads rather than a movie, because with a movie, people can say, oh, it's a movie, even though it was based on a nonfiction book, is that, the majority, the vast majority of people in this book and in this this story in the movie, were not people that didn't work. They were not lazy people that just kept going for years and years, lived in their parents' basement, and then you know finally had to strike out on their own. These were people that had jobs, many jobs. A lot of them had education. A lot of them felt like they were set for life in a lot of ways, and then the floor dropped out. And a lot of this has to do with the the financial crisis we faced in two thousand eight. 2009, when a lot of people, you know, lost their 401ks and their savings and their jobs and all that. Um, but it shows you how close people are to the edge, because I have this conversation with people all the time who say, oh, the homeless, they're drug addicts and they are, you know, mentally ill. And yes, some of them are. But we also live in a society that's very different from when I grew up. And I'm assuming when you grew up, when 
you can have this quote unquote meaningless job, a, a, a fast food job or a restaurant job or something like that. And you could still afford an apartment. Mm-hmm. You could still afford to live. You didn't have to have roommates. And it's completely different now. Yeah, definitely a change of the quote unquote attainability of the American dream. And, you know, something that they touched on in the book, too, is they had this one lady who was in her 50s. Her husband died and she needed to put food on the table, but she was in her 50s and she didn't have the you know, she wasn't hireable, even though she had marketable skills. I think she was a bookkeeper, if I'm remembering correctly. And but but nobody would hire her because she's in her 50s. So right. and th- there's like this there's rampant ageism and sexism in the workplace. A lot of, good, you know, if, if you're in your 20s or 30s, they don't always want to hire you as a woman because they know you're going to childbearing age and you might right. you know, flake on them. And then True. you're in your 50s and then suddenly you're like, oh, well, that's going to run up insurance premiums. And who knows if you're going to last and you're probably not, you know, all of these things. It was very surprising because, again, like you say, you don't think about the fact that a lot of people had this education. They had things very much set up and then one little thing happens and then it's a cascade mentality and then suddenly everything's lost. And it's terrifying because this book came out in 2017. So at the time of our recording, that's four years ago, right? right. And some of these people were in their seventies and the pandemic had not happened. Right, <laughs> now, right. I am legitimately worried about these people, you know? Like, yeah. what? because the campgrounds all closed down, you know, so like those camp workers, and I know that Amazon picked up, but my God, the working conditions of Amazon are, you know, extreme. And so it is, it is just, yeah, very, you know, to to talk about the, to to speak to the, the ageism thing, because years ago I was managing hotels. I was successful. I lost my second job managing a hotel simply because they could bring in a 20 year old and pay them half of what they were paying me. And I didn't want to move up the chain of command to become a district manager, which is what they wanted me to do for various reasons, but whatever I, the the hotel was, both hotels were successful when I was running them. So at that point in my life, I decided because it coincided with the nonprofit stuff coming into my life and the hate crimes that were happening around the LGBTQ community, that I was not going to go back to the corporate world, that I was going to take my DJ job at a club, and I had a I had a rent duplex that I was renting. I didn't need to go back to work. And I I had this conversation with James at the time. I'm like, you know, this is dangerous because I am 42, 44 years old. And by the time I get back into the workplace, I could easily be 50. And what am I going to do? I knew there was a big risk. And sure enough, when the bar ended up closing down and the nonprofit shut down, even though I wasn't making any money at the nonprofit, but still I had to go, I had to go out and get a job. And they look at you completely differently when you're over 50, regardless of your experience or your competence or what your skills are, just the fact that you're over 50. I mean, one of the things like you said is they think how much longer are you going to be around? You're going to, you're going to, we're, we're going to get what out of you five, 10 years and that's it. So you're not going to stay here. So, and there's all kinds of other reasons and factors too. It's, it's scary as hell to try and get back into the workplace at that age. I got really lucky and I've got a good job now, but so many people don't because they won't even listen to you. They won't even talk to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. That's, that's the risk. That's the thing. And then they're talking about 401ks and, you know, social security and stuff. And I'm sitting here (laughs) as a freelancer who makes like nothing. Okay. My husband makes money. He has a 401k, but we, we didn't really start contributing to it until 
well, later in life than we probably right. should have been because we were, you know, young, blah, 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 not really thinking about it. And then I had a 401k back when I worked in the corporate world. And when we bought this house, I rolled it into something and took it out and took the tax penalty. It's gone, right? Like right. it's just not right. there anymore. And, you know, we're going to have to live on his retirement, his social security, because it's now been so long since I've had a quote unquote, like real job that, you know, I haven't been paying into social security in so many years that there's, I mean, what, you know, and, and that's really scary. That's one of the reasons why we're in such a freaking mad dash rush to get this house paid off because we want to, we want to have him be able to work a little bit after the house is paid off so that we can put more money into retirement, you know, into right, right. but it is very scary to think about the fact that that could just not be enough. And then what the heck do you do? You know, and some of these people had family that they could live with and some people don't. And the ones that do like, you know, it was talking about, okay, so she's sleeping on the couch. Linda May's on the couch. There's somebody in a bedroom. There's one of the kids sleeps in the closet. The other kid sleeps in the kitchen, you know, like all of these things. And that, that razor thin line between middle-class and working poor and house free slash homeless is, is, well, it's razor thin. So it is. And uh, I'm a little older than you. And I remember when there actually was a true middle class and you didn't have to worry because every, I mean, and, and the, and the women in the household, the mothers didn't even have to work at that time. The, it's just the husbands worked. I mean, some did. And, and eventually uh, it turned out that people had to both work in the household to make ends meet. But back then the women didn't work and you didn't worry because the floor wasn't so shaky underneath you. But now it just takes one thing. And, and in, in this, in the book and in the movie, a lot of it is medical because when we're when we were talking earlier about how lucky we are, you know, insurance is one of those those big things that makes you feel really lucky when you have it because these people don't have it. And as we know, most insurance doesn't even cover dental. So when they need dental work, that's not even covered. They talk about that. So one illness and you have to decide what am I going to do? Am I going to pay my medical bill or am I going to you know, buy gas? Yeah. So our intrepid reporter here, you know, uh, she's there and she's talking to these people and we get a lot of, not just Linda May, we get a lot of different people's stories and, and we really feel for them. And Jessica is there with them. She earns their trust. She lives alongside them for a while. And it was, it was really interesting. I did feel that sometimes we got, it was a little bit too much about her. For example, (laughs) I think you probably know what I'm going to say at one point she randomly tells us that she smokes a joint and it turns out that was a bad idea because right, then later right. on she wanted to get a job at the Amazon fulfillment center and they do a and drug, drug test, test and she's like, Oh fuck, I, you know, this isn't good. And then she literally explains to us how she cheats the drug <laughs> test yeah, by yeah. putting, okay, you guys getting somebody else's urine. Yeah. It's well. And then where she puts that, how she transport, it's a little, oh, yeah, yeah. Right. I, Okay. That was a detail that I'm not sure I needed. Wow. Yeah, because that was very specific to her. I don't remember that being an issue with anybody else. Nobody else. Well, none of yeah. the other retirees were like, oh, crap, my, my drug yeah, test. Yeah, so maybe she I, was trying to say this could happen to somebody else. So I, let me tell you how it happened to me. I, yeah, I, I, get, I get what you're saying. It was a little weird. And then there was like, you know, she really bonded with Linda May. She's out there with her video phone, like taking pictures of Linda May's land and stuff. I mean, so there was definitely like a where you almost became the story. And I I appreciate that she wanted to actually live the experience in the van. Okay, that was fine. And I thought it was really well done. I appreciated that she wanted to live the experience by having the job. 
But in both cases, she knew she could just leave at any time. And True. it's it's not the same, you know, and then she she even said she's like, I didn't need to be here. So I stopped being here because it yeah, she said that when she was working at Amazon, when she said I, she said, I knew I wasn't stuck here like the rest of these people. And then she only stayed there for a short time and she left. Yeah, it was like a week. You know, which I think you and I probably would have done, too. We would have walked out of that. Place. I mean, anybody would. If you could, yeah. you would. If you could. Um, That's yeah. The thing, if you could. If you could. And so I I feel like that was, you know, it's it's interesting. It's and I'm I'm not going to be like, let's talk about privilege because not every conversation has to be about privilege. But I do think that there is an element of of that that kind of came through because m- most of the people that she talks to are white or white presenting in this book. Right. And it is a very different thing to be homeless or van dwelling as a person of color in this country than as a white person. And she, she, she does specifically she does talk address about, that. She talks about that as, as a way of like acknowledging that this is a very white thing because there's a lot of people, you know, most right. of the people that she talks to are white. And so I was like, that's interesting. And, I, and she, she definitely addresses it. But then where there was no second step to find, well, where are those people? What happens yeah. if you're an African-American, you know, she kind of internally thought about it, but didn't research it and find out what really is going on there. She yeah. kind of just jumped to some conclusions. Yeah. So I thought that I, I would have been interested to know, you know, what would have what the answers would have been to those questions. Is there more of a sense of community or family support in those circles? Is it more underground? You know, what, what is and the then there was that almost humorous thing about how only white people are dumb enough to go camping. So it makes sense that white people are the ones out there doing the no bad thing because people of color don't consider camping anything to be glamorous or something right. to, a, to rise up to, to aspire so, to, yeah, to aspire exactly. to. Exactly. Well, okay. And I have a friend who was raised very, very poor and I remember as a group of us were talking once about, oh, wouldn't it be fun to go camping? And she's like, no, I was already poor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't need to do that again. Like now, exactly. I, now I can afford a hotel. And I was like, I mean, yep. my, my family, we camped a lot and we weren't we weren't uh, poor, but we weren't rich either. But we camped a lot. But it was just a normal activity. But now at this age, when I have my adult friends say, let's go camping. I'm like, are you fucking crazy? I'm not going camping. I'll stay in a hotel nearby if you want. But. Seriously? I'm not deliberately putting my ass on a piece of canvas in the dirt with bugs. It's not no. happening. I need a toilet and a mattress. Yeah, thank I, you. I, my needs are few, but they are yeah. specific. <laughs> very specific, <laughs> exactly. So. Well, I will say, I agree with you about the, the writer. The way that it kind of made it work for me is that she seemed to be very naive about not only the situation she was putting herself into, but about writing in general. So it seemed like this was a very new venture for her and she was kind of feeling her way through it. So um, it felt like it, even though she stumbled and put herself into the story more than she should have, it felt like that was probably just a natural reaction for her as a novice writer and a novice researcher, not understanding that. Cause she did say, I think she did say at the end, she should keep herself out of it more, but she'd already put herself into it. So it felt like a learning experience for her. That's how, is how I saw it too. Well, and I also feel like she was so emotionally invested. Like she and Linda May are like BFFs, right? Like this is not a, like I interview you and I write about you in the end. Like she's written about Linda May several times. They, this is, they're definitely close and that's great, but it makes me, you know, it's like, okay, but you don't have to get that close to your subject in order to talk about what the issues of the, su- you know, what's going on. It changes your perspective when you're it, that close. It definitely yeah. does. So and she does say at the very end, toward the very end, she says something to the effect of, I'm paraphrasing, I need to take the advice of 
my colleagues would say when the, when you're finished with the story, you need to step away, mm-hmm. which is true. And I don't know if she did or not, because we don't have a follow up in the last four years that I know of. But and I think it would be really interesting, like you mentioned, to see what happened to these people because of the pandemic. Yeah. OK, so this came out in 2017 and then they made the movie. And, but the movie is nonfiction. I mean, it's based on a nonfiction thing and it could have very easily have been a documentary, but it wasn't. So it almost feels I, I don't feel cheated. That's not quite the right word, but I feel very close to cheated that we didn't that, that they made the movie based on the 2017 instead of making it a documentary about what's going on. Does that does that make sense? Well, it's, but I, let's say, OK, the movie premiered. I'm looking at the screen now. It premiered September 11, 2020, which means they filmed it in 2019. 19. They had yeah, the movies usually film a year before. And I read today when I was looking at some stuff exactly when they filmed it. I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it now. They filmed it just oh. in four months. Well, and um, they f- she Francis McDermott read the book and was like right. and then and then wanted to produce the movie and wanted to star. Right. In it. So I get right. I get why they didn't reference the pandemic. I that's I understand why they don't reference the pandemic. But I feel like because it didn't get released until 2020, it would have like been nice if there had been some kind of epilogue, even like a title screen that yeah. said something, you know, well, about... I am reading now they, they filmed this in four months in the fall of 2018. So that it was in okay. 18. So they filmed it way before the pandemic. Way before. But still, yeah. I mean, in post-production, you can add a title card. I'm yeah, true, true, I'm true. That would have been nice. Although it might, it might, it might have taken away from the, the crux of the story, which is really about economic, the economic downturn and the, the precipice that people are walking that don't have a safety net underneath them. So when you add the pandemic into that, I, maybe that would have given the public an excuse to say, oh, it's happening because of the pandemic rather than it's happening because in America, our, well, our, our safety nets are gone. I think that the, the main thing is that the book was about the economic trap and the failure of the middle class and all the things. And the movie was about a woman named Fern who was grieving her dead husband. Yeah. So I was thinking about the differences in the movie and the, in the book today. And that was one of them, that storyline about her grieving her. Well, I mean, Fern's a created character anyway, because yes. there, she was not in the book. So at first you think, well, does Fern represent the reporter? And she doesn't No, um, she's a completely different character. I think the only way that the, the reporter is represented by Fern is in Fern's coming to terms with what this world is about, which is what the reporter had to do. Her newness but, to it. Right, yes. her newness to it. But the storyline with her with her dead husband and then with the love interest, that's completely new. Yeah. Um, and and you, you know that that's, well, I mean, if, when you make a movie, you got to do, sometimes you got to do a couple of things. Okay, but here's the thing. I, I, I feel like a lot of times an adaptation is like, like a child of the original, right? It's like, the, or, right. or, or like a sister or, you know, a, a sibling. They're very, very similar. They came from the same place. This, I felt like for, and I am, I'm stealing this from a review I read earlier today. It's like more like cousins, you know, or like a different family member because they are telling different stories. The trappings are very similar. The setting is the same, but the book is about this political issue, this social issue, these issues and these people that live in them. And right. the movie is, is is about a woman with going through the grieving process. It, it's it's about her and it and the the fact that we hardly touch on the Amazon stuff, which I know we want to talk about, and the fact yeah. that like there is this love interest and like, but the fact that she has much more of a choice. You know, she has 
a safety net. And other she has a family who says move in. Yes. And she's choosing to not do that. And then when she's talking to her sister, it's like implied that she's always been a little bit different and blah, blah, blah. It's very different. It changes the onus so completely that I feel like the movie is a beautiful exploration of grief and processing set against the backdrop of a nomad lifestyle and these interesting things that there are people out there who choose this life versus the book, which is like, there's this big fucking issue in our society right now that nobody's talking about and we need to look at it and sit with and be uncomfortable and then do something about. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And those are completely yeah. different things. You're right. So- there's there's this fee- almost a feeling with Fern, the, the character played by um, Frances McDormand in the movie, that she's going into this nomad land world specifically to run away from the death of her husband and any other physical or emotional interaction with people because she doesn't want to deal with that. So in that way, in the movie, it's a woman making a choice to go into this world. And the story's not about the world. The story's about the choice this woman is making to run away. I get that. I think you're right about that. And in the book, the, on the other hand, when you look at a nonfiction book and you know Nomadland is nonfiction when you're reading it, you're specifically, most of the time, people are looking at a nonfiction book to learn something to learn about the issue or the situation or whatever. It's not to be entertained. It's to, to, to be enlightened and learn about something. So you go into the book with that feeling. I want to know why these people are, are nomads, why they've lost everything, and what, how they survive and what the economy is doing to them. In the movie, you have to, they, they want you to be emotionally invested. And so they use the Fern character to get you emotionally invested. Yeah. So I think if you, if you do one or the other, the book, you're going to get a certain aspect and that's going to be the social issues of it in the movie. You're going to see the social issues, but not dig the way the book is. I didn't know. I knew, I knew this was based on a nonfiction book, but I had never read it until we did until we're doing this. I'm so glad I did because it taught me so much more about these characters in the movie. And and let's just say this, three of the characters, the main characters in the movies are these actual nomads. They're not actors. They, they were hired to play themselves in a way in this movie. Well, (laughs) but that, and I think that that's really, that's, that's really important, right? That they are, that the book is doing one thing and the movie is doing another thing. And I, I actually heard an interview. I listened to a little bit of an interview where somebody was asking the author about this and they were saying, you know, what, how do you feel about them? leaving out all the Amazon stuff and doing this other thing and like creating this fern character and blah, blah, blah. And what she said, let's see here. She didn't expect the movie to replicate the book beat for beat, but she's not going to hit the movie with a stick and complain about it. She says, I'm not a screenwriter. So there you go. I liked that it opened an empire. I liked this and that and the other thing but I'm not a screenwriter. So she basically was like, yeah, I mean, I put this thing in the world and then they took it and did something else with it. And so she sold her rights to it. So that's, that's what it is. And that is valid. It's super valid. And like I said, you know, the movie is great, but I'm really, it, it it hardly scratches the surface. And yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to steer people away from the movie. I think the movie's brilliant. I think it's visually stunning. The acting is brilliant and did it actually one best picture. Yeah, it it did. It did. I mean, well-deserved, I think it was. And I think Frances McDormand won for Best Actress mm-hmm. um, and Producer. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an amazing film. It's just there's a depth to the book that you you don't get in the film. But I think that's almost any film. You're right. not going to get the depth you get in the book, especially if it, the book is a nonfiction piece and the film is right. Well, and they're, they're choosing to make the film not political. 
and right. they and you know that's fine well, let's face it most people i mean documentaries are not as watched as dramatic films so. Ex- exactly and and that's again that's fine i personally feel like i said before cheated is not quite the right word betrayed's not i mean but there's something akin to that because i feel like this was a political thing with a political issue and you've sanitized it and made it into something else something that's still cool and great and important and nice and good and blah 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 but it because it started as something it started as important and it became entertainment and Mm -hmm. so personally i'm like a little disappointed does that make sense like it does but when you say it's entertainment it's also gut-wrenching oh it is it is it is it is it is heartbreaking i mean i I have to tell you she has this box of plates and then she tells somebody at one point, like this came from my dad and he collected these and whatever. And then this, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> she's like, she has ants in her, in her van. You and don't so like him. I can tell. <laughs> she's cleaning out her stuff and Dave comes over and Dave has like been hitting on her and she's been like not giving him anything, but whatever. Dave is here now, Dave. And he's got his like licorice whoops. He's trying to get her to quit smoking. Nobody asked you, Dave. And then she, she's like, I've got ants. He's like, oh, ants aren't a big deal. And she's like, yes, they are, Dave. They are a big deal. They're in my, <laughs> They're food. In my food, Dave. And then he goes, oh, okay. And so then like he literally walks into her space, picks up a box out of her van and says, where do you want this? And turns around and the bottom opens up and the place crash and Chris I went (gasps) (laughs) and Ella's from the other room my daughter she's like what's wrong and she's like covering her eyes because sometimes I watch scary things and violent things in here I'm like no 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 it just dropped a plate but it's really emotional (laughs) (laughs) and then the scene where she's gluing them back together I mean oh my god because they mean so much to her and it was I mean it wasn't his fault it was an accident but still I was I was I immediately put myself in her place I'm like I would kick him the fuck out too because she was like stand over there right 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 girl yes so so that actor David Strathern is the character the one that plays that character he's a brilliant actor anyway but I do like that I mean, this is off the subject of the of the economic stuff, but uh-huh. I, I, I like that part of the movie where she keeps pushing him away and she's pushing him away deliberately because she doesn't want to get back into a relationship again because of all the pain of her husband dying from cancer. So I like that story. I, I, I grant you that it's not part of the book and it's not anything to do with anything in the book. And it's just a, something they put in the movie for whatever reason. But I, I appreciated that because I've kind of been through that. So I get it. Yeah. Um, no. And again, because the movie is about a woman's journey through grief, it was totally relevant and it right, made perfect right. sense that it was there and it hit those narrative things. And he was a nomad like her, but then he, his family, her family asked her to come and stay. And she says, right. no, his family right. asked him to come and stay. And he says, yes, which is why yes, they are yes. different and diametrically opposed. And they're not going to work out. She goes and stays at his family's house. They're all very well which is weird. I got to say, it's a little weird. They, they were so welcoming of this random stranger lady who lives in her van, but they're like, cool, cool, cool. Come stay in our guest house. Well, they seem like hold, hippies. I mean. hold my baby. And I'm just not even going to be in the room. Okay, <laughs> fine. But she can't even stay in the house. She has to go sleep in the van. You know, well, and they, and they, that family, that's not even her family invites her to stay. And yeah, she refuses in the, that in too. Their guest so she, house. She's, she's now been offered two places. Right. So, and, and I mean, again, that's because in the movie we're learning about her, it's a character study, you know, of her and her rejection of these, the social things and that home and health and safety and all right. of that's hearth that it represents because she's not ready for that. She can't get there. She's still grieving and it's right. beautifully done. 
even, and it's really sad, but yeah, it is, it is very different. Um, and I will say, I mean, another scene in the movie, cause while we're talking about it, the scene where Bob is talking about his son's suicide, I freaking cried oh, yeah. like a baby. It was really, it was very, and Bob, and that's one of the real, actors in the, he was the real guy. Yeah. He's the real Bob. Yeah. And so that, and do you know if that story is real? The son's suicide? I do not know. I doubt that he would have like, I doubt they would have written that for him. I'm sure yeah. that that is, is a real thing. I mean, it seemed, and the man's not an actor. It, that seemed no, and the three very actors, genuine. The, and there's more than three, but the three main ones, Bob and, and Swanky mm-hmm. and Linda, if you didn't know that they were real nomads, you wouldn't know that they weren't actors. They were brilliant in this mm-hmm. movie. I thought each one, especially Swanky, who was going through, and I, I think, she, I don't think she died in real life. No. So they, they wrote that part. They wrote that. They and, killed her uh, off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're going to give you cancer. For emotional goes, relevance. Yeah. You have to, somebody has to die and it has to somebody. be Somebody. So she goes, which makes sense. And, uh, I, mean, I mean, that's another movie. Other thing. people died in the book. They, I think they just merged the character of Swanky with a couple other real nomads. Yeah, because you there know, was well, a couple people who had died in the book was it was it people on because i remember the people some shirt this whole part where she was mentioning people who died they were all the people the part that i remember was these people died on their own alone untended to like they, they died in their van or they died on the street and weren't found for days i i i don't remember people dying the normal way if there is if you know what i mean right i don't remember no i think it was all they like they had just they just disappeared and like they died somewhere right right away uh yeah for sure one of the things that i think connected to that people going off and dying alone or not alone is the idea of alone versus not alone and that's the idea of the community the community that is built up by this very active online community this very active you know meeting places and so even nomads need socialization, you know, even right. these introverted stepping away from society, we still have these gatherings and they're very important gatherings. And I thought that was just really interesting. And it just goes to show you how much as humans, we need that socialization, even if it's some of us need it different amounts than others, but that sense of community, that sense of connection, and then like learning from our elders. And one of the things I loved in the movie and I loved in the book was where they would have like okay, I'm going to teach you how to poop in a bucket, you know, and right, I'm, right. I'm going to teach you how to fix a flat tire and I'm going to teach you how to do this. And like, da, 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 da. and like this sharing of knowledge is, it was very cool and very nice. It was, I it think was- that's particularly poignant right now. You know, what we've been through in the last couple of years, my brother and I talk politics sometimes, and I'm always, always bringing up tribalism. And I'm like, you know, there's a reason that people behave this way. And it's tribalism. People want to belong to a group, they want to belong to a concept, they want to belong to a thought process, regardless of what that is, and they will fight and fight to do that. And so in this in this book and movie, these people are technically striking out on their own, most of them are all by themselves. But then they need to gather and they need to be with people. Oh, she does point out a few people and Swanky's one of them, who when she doesn't want to be bothered, she puts up, I think, a pirate flag over her van, which means mm-hmm. meaning leave me alone. Don't come knock on my door. <laughs> I, 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 I've thought about myself and I'm like, if I was a nomad, I would have to have some kind of flag too or something to the, like for the next three hours. Don't bug me. And then she mentions other characters who come to the events to learn some of the seminar stuff that they do, but can only stay for two hours because they've had so much of the public. That's all they can take. But for the most part, people flock to these events because they're alone so much of the time and they need that human contact. So that's universal across the board. Yeah. And I, and I like the fact that now, you know, because of the internet, 
and the message boards and the forums and the Instagrams and the whatever. Um, and because, you know, smartphones are ubiquitous and there's Wi-Fi and there's 5G and whatever, like you can stay connected. So, you right. know, there's a lot of us who, who don't live the nomad lifestyle, but still have maybe 40% of our friends live on our computers, <laughs> you know? Right, right. And so the COVID happened. And that, like, sure. we, we still had friends. We were still able, we weren't able to see them in person, but we were still able to communicate with our friends, both near and far and our IRL friends and our computer friends. And yeah. You know, I still, I still think about that all the time because again, I'm older than you. I, why do I keep reminding you of that? But anyway, <laughs> um, you know, I certainly remember when you had to actually pick up a phone and call a friend. And so, you rarely, you did not talk to all your friends every day, but technically today with Facebook and all that, you're seeing your friends' lives unfold every single day. And there are days where I go, I'm so sick of my friends' lives. I don't want to see them anymore. Um, I, I yearn for the days where I wouldn't hear from them unless they called me on the phone. And that lasts for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And then I go back to checking what everybody's up to. So, I mean, I think our friends are, for most of us, Anyway, I think our friends are much more online, even though we know them personally. Mm -hmm. It's not like we actually keep up like we used to, like we would, you know, get together or talk on the phone or whatever. So without without all this stuff, this movement would not be what it is, the, the nomad yeah. movement, because they wouldn't know what to do. They wouldn't know where to gather. They wouldn't know how to get together. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And, and I get again, like she's talking about this this thing and it's based on the because of the recession and then because like there's this huge number, but she does reference in the book that this is not a brand new phenomenon. There's always been oh, yeah. nomads. There's always been people who don't live as part of quote unquote society's rules and they do their own thing and they, they travel here and there. Like you have the covered wagon people, like, you know, like this idea is not brand new. It's just now it's different. And the reasons behind it are, are different but if you think about it, a lot of the times, a lot of the people who got into those covered wagons didn't have a lot of other options, right? You know, right, it was right. like, okay, well, this is this is all we can do, so let's just do it. You know, we yeah. Don't, and I yeah. like the whole part in the book where she talks about the camper trailer movement that started in the '30s in America, where it was technically about you know disconnecting, not disconnecting in the way we know it now, but disconnecting and downsizing. So that you didn't have to pay a mortgage and you could just get in a camp and it was huge and it became this huge boom. And then eventually other people started to look at those people as losers, so to speak, people who were not taking responsibility for their lives and not planting, you know, a foundation, so to speak, with their house and their family and doing it the way everybody else did. And then it fell out of favor. But it, for a long time, it was considered like the freedom movement, people would get a camper or a trailer and go out onto the road and that's how they would live. And now they're doing it more out of necessity. Well, these people in this book are doing it out of necessity. So just real quick, I want to touch on the fact that nowadays, especially post COVID, when people are like, hey, I can do my job from anywhere as long as I have internet, there is a new resurgence. It's not based on the recession now, it's based on COVID and like a freedom aspect. And there are younger people. It's not a retirement and a lack of resources. Now we have younger people who are getting these very expensive motorhomes, these very expensive trailers or whatever, and it's a lifestyle choice. And so now is the perfect time for me to cut over to my interview with Kendall, who is one of the such people she and her husband and their two sons, their five-year-old and their four-year-old are full-time road warriors. <laughs> they're not, they're not homeschooling. They're road schooling because they're, you know, obviously homeschooling 
on the road and uh, and they travel around in their RV. And so I'm going to cut now into that interview. So my podcast, as you know, that we talk about movies based on books and we don't normally do nonfiction, but I thought this was an interesting topic and I was kind of fascinated by it because like I said, this is primarily geared towards talking about retirees and older Americans, but you are younger than me and, but you and your family made a choice. And so I was just kind of curious, like what the thought process is. And then like, if you could tell me a little bit about it. So I guess my first question is what were your motivations to choosing and how would you define or describe your lifestyle choice? I don't know how else to put it. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Well, a bit of the backstory is that we were living in Indonesia and then we came back to the States having no idea where we would live. And so first we lived with Tyler's parents and we came back in March of 2020. So right in the middle of the pandemic chaos, you know, craziness, nobody knows what's going to happen kind of thing. So that was the best place for us to be. They had plenty of space for us. We didn't have to buy a house. We didn't have to rent. Uh, We didn't pay anything to be with them. Well, a few months go by and we're like, well, we can't stay here forever. (laughs) We have to get enough space at some point. Tyler and I went on a um, motorcycle trip. We were staying at a campground and there were RVs there. This family was full-time RVing. And it was our first time we'd even heard of such thing for like a whole family to live in one RV and be cool with it and it to be their lifestyle. So they told us about it and that's what got us thinking, hmm, maybe we could do that. We love traveling and most of my traveling living internationally has been international travel, not so much in the States. When we came to the States, the whole point was to be with family. So any traveling was just to go from one family to another, that kind of thing. Like Metcalf reunions, that was like the main family traveling in America. So um, I wanted to see a lot more of the U.S. The boys had barely seen any. And we didn't have a house to sell or you know a bunch of possessions to get rid of we'd already cut ties with that kind of life when we left Indonesia Mm -hmm. so we were at a really good spot to try something like this most people like you said are retiring and therefore have a house and a ton of stuff that they have to figure out what to do with and it's this huge transition to go small for us it wasn't that bad because we'd already transitioned from Indonesia to America, and then we didn't have a home. So for us, it was just, okay, financially, how do we make this work? Tyler came back to the States to go to school, and I didn't have a job. I didn't really want to have a job, if possible. For the first time in my life, I was able to stay home and start homeschooling the boys, and I really wanted to keep it that way, if possible. So that actually turned out to work for, for us. And Tyler's working online. He's teaching coding now. And so as long as we have internet, which has proven to be difficult, unfortunately, we can live this lifestyle. Wow. That's exciting. And, you know, because like I said, the book was written before 2020, but in 2020, when a lot of people started working from home, I'm wondering, you know, personally, if a lot more people are going to be 
hitting the road or, or downsizing in this way, because, you know, that is now kind of an option once you realize it is. So one of my questions was, uh, what kind of prep work you did, um, you met another family, but did you research it at all? Did, are you, are you, you know, did you read books or blogs about how to do it? Or did you just talk to the one family and then wing in a prayer, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, how did you decide on the RV that you got? You know what I mean? Like, what was the thought process yeah. and the prep work of it? And, and just because uh-huh. I'm morbidly curious, like from the day of meeting that family to the day of like, this is our home now and we're driving away in our RV, like how long was that process? Uh, well, we met that family in June of 2020 and we didn't leave Tyler's parents' front yard until September 3rd, uh, 2021. Okay. Over a year of preparation which started with, yeah, a lot of research, reading articles, following a lot of like full-time RVers on YouTube, watching their episodes, how they, you know, they explain all kinds of things. They've got quite a following. RV homeschool moms on Instagram as well, and sending them messages, asking questions. We didn't like verbally talk to very many people because we didn't know anyone personally, but we did a lot of following and listening, watching that kind of thing. To choose our RV, we started going to RV lots where they're selling and we thought we would get, we thought we would get a used RV, but we didn't see anything that really felt like it would be our home. It just reminded us of old people (laughs) and, you know, smell and, you know, so But then we started looking at new ones and we're thinking there's no way we can spend that much money, even if it is our home. We didn't have a lot of money to start with. So, oh, he wants to say hi. 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 Well, I didn't want to say hi. Oh, buddy. I'm going to have to do it later, okay? Or you can ask Theo to help you. So cute. Um, You were saying you didn't want to spend that much on a... Yes, but we started looking at new ones, even 2021, and realized actually they're not that much more expensive than the used ones. And since it would be our full-time home, we were willing to, to spend a little more than we thought to get something that we really liked and would feel good being in. So we splurged a little bit, but it wasn't as bad as we thought, thankfully. Um, so we have a Keystone Cougar 2021 and it has two bedrooms and a loft so we have a room that we call our playroom we can actually close it has its own door which is a godsend for me being home with the boys all day (laughs) our bedroom has a desk in it for Tyler's three screen setup he's working right now in our bedroom his office And then the boys have their own bed. They share. It's the loft. And it's big enough for all four of us to lay down together at bedtime. Wow. We definitely have plenty of space. That was how we decided which one we would get. We needed Tyler to have his own space. We needed the boys to have some space away from me. And it needed to be homey. So we, you know, wanted to be in it and would be able to host other people. And we've had other people stay with us overnight multiple times because there is enough space. Wow. Yeah. I saw your picture on Instagram when I was like looking at 
when I was not at all stalking you because we're related and I'm allowed to see your Instagram, but yes, I totally saw that you were hosting people and I was like, wow, that's so cool. Like it just, that's a, that's definitely something that I had thought, oh, I bet they can't do that anymore. So that's, yeah, it's really cool that you're able to still do that. Okay. So I have a question about community because mm -hmm. one of the main things that they talk about in the book, less in the movie, but still there is the sense of found communities that like spring up, there's gatherings and there's like whole big things. And you guys have only been technically like on the road for a couple of months, but you have yeah. an online community. Is, are mm -hmm. you, will you ever go to any of the physical gatherings that they do for full-time RV people? Is that like on your horizon or are you sticking more with the virtual online community? The main community that I really want to get involved with is called Full-Time Families, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It is full-time families RVing across the country, homeschooling their kids, and gathering so that their kids, particularly, find friends who have the same experiences like them. And, you know, you, you hear all kinds of things about homeschoolers kind of that classic, they're awkward, they don't know how to socialize, that kind of thing. I was obviously don't want my kids to be like that. As the boys get older, I definitely want them to be around more kids, more families who are doing this lifestyle too. So they they don't feel like they're the weird ones. They're gonna, they're gonna be different anyways, because obviously, I mean, the whole point of us even talking about this is it is not normal, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is not normal. So I want them to be excited about it and enjoy it for as long as possible. I think having friends who do this too will help because right now their only friends in America are their cousins and none of their cousins understand <laughs> what we're doing. Like, you know, they're, no. and they're young. Yes. If, if we were older kids who had a better sense of what this was, then it would help. But right now we live with, the grandparents for a year and a half that became normal and now we're not there so yeah that group full-time families is a membership we haven't joined that yet but i'm hoping in the next few months we will maybe after the beginning of the year for next spring and they have gatherings like in person they meet up in different places across the country four times a year i think quarterly wow and they they do like a whole week of bonfires, potlucks, going on hikes, like doing craft class, different classes for all the kids to do together. Like it sounds like tons of fun. So hopefully that is on our horizon. Horizon, and of course that would be friendships for Tyler and I too. Yeah, I mean, you know, the kids need their socialization, but so do you guys. <laughs> okay, so yeah, kind of like going off the, the boys are young, four and five. Four and five. Okay, is this a, a long term or a short term kind of thing? Uh, we are thinking five years right now. And the reason is Theo's five. So in five years, he'll be 10. And we're not sure how well we will fit in this RV. Once <laughs> get older so we are kind of we're playing it by year of course we don't know what the next few years will hold we don't know when we will transition to a different rig maybe sooner than later we don't know but for now we're gonna say five years because we're hoping within five years we will have been able to travel extensively 
And I don't know if we'll get to all 50 states, probably not, but we'd like to get as many as possible. Hawaii might be a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> we'll try. We'll try. Canada, I mean, Alaska is rough too. That's true. <laughs> you talked about, you mentioned very briefly that sometimes it's hard to find Wi-Fi. And one of my questions is what are some of the benefits or the unforeseen benefits and the unforeseen drawbacks of living on the road? Well, I'd always thought Wi-Fi, well, maybe not Wi-Fi in particular, but internet service was kind of easy to come by, but that's because I'd always been in a city. <laughs> uh-huh. Seeing the other side of that. And here's something that was surprising to us. When you're in an RV park, it does not mean that there is better internet service. It actually means that there is worse internet service because all those RVs are basically stealing each other's internet and then nobody has it. It's like a fight and nobody wins. <laughs> so the best thing for Tyler to do is not to stay in the RV, but to go to a large parking lot like Walmart and he actually gets better service there. Um, but that means that he's working all day in his truck. So I was going to ask, does he, do you tow the truck or does it drive along beside you or how does that work? No. So we're in a fifth wheel. We use our big truck to tow it okay. and it's our only vehicle. So when he has to go work somewhere else during the day, that means I'm stuck with the RV, unfortunately, okay. unless we all go with him and then we're wandering all day <laughs> find things to do. And then I spend more money. Yeah. <laughs> So today is great because we are in a, um, we're in a more remote area, but we're right next to this restaurant that has its own Wi-Fi and they have really good service. We're not surrounded by other RVs, so we're not fighting for it. So that's really cool. Oh, and this is worth mentioning. There's this company called Harvest Hosts and they have connected with companies across the country almost a thousand different locations so you have a there's a small fee of like 80 dollars per year to become a member of harvest hosts and then you go on their app and you find locations that are near where you want to stop and you stay there for free oh wow and these locations are like restaurants distilleries wineries farms like really random places and they can be out in the middle of nowhere or they can be near a city right now we're uh 20 minutes out of town but we're at this saloon on route 66 and it's the coolest thing ever so we're staying two nights here for free wow and all you do is the host asks you to spend a little bit of money in their facility so of course we'll have dinner there tonight you know that kind of thing Oh. And when we were in Fallon, we were on a farm for two nights, and then we were at two different wineries. So you just get a totally different experience. It's very cool. And those places actually have better internet than RV parks. Wow. Because there's fewer people trying to yeah. get, yeah. Interesting. Okay. So homeless is not the right word, obviously. You said full-time families earlier as the name of the organization, but is there a a phrase or a word or a label for full wheel time, or I don't know, like the book had a couple of funny ones, but I'm not sure like how people actually identify. Well, I tell people that we are RVing full time. 
I could say we're homeschooling, which is true because this is our home. Or I could say that we're road schooling. That is a phrase people use, road schooling, because what you're learning about doesn't have to just come from your curriculum, but it comes from where you are. Mm-hmm. So I really like that. That's my favorite, that we're road schooling. That is very cool, road schooling. So would you recommend this lifestyle to people or is there a certain type of person who might do better in the full-time RV slash road schooling type of life than others? Well, I think an obvious one is having a sense of adventure. If you're not very adventurous or you like things to be the same all the time, then you probably wouldn't enjoy this. Sometimes things are a lot harder than you think they're going to be. And I know that you can apply that to any kind of lifestyle, anywhere you live, right? But things just come a little, things are just going to be a little more tricky because you're constantly moving. When you live in a house or an apartment that is stationary, there's certain things you don't have to worry about usually, or maintenance things that aren't, are just not going to be at the forefront of your mind because it's not likely to go wrong very often. But when you're moving your whole home on wheels, oh, we do call this our home on wheels. It's another phrase. There's the constant possibility that things will go wrong either with the truck or with the rig. So there's just a lot of factors. If you're not ready to process all these different things of how things could go wrong and be okay with things going wrong, then it would be a huge hoop to go through to make this your lifestyle. People who do short-term RV trips, most people, it's just the recreational vehicle. It's not their home. They're, they're like halfway there, and that's a really good way to start. We did some short-term trips. We broke down on all three of those trips before we started our actual living on the road. And we had to switch tr- trucks. Thankfully, we were able to trade in our the first truck that we bought in March because it was serious. Like, we've never been so stressed out. <laughs> so got to be prepared for all those things. Last night, it took us an hour and a half to level our RV and get all the feet. It has four feet that need to be down on the ground so that you can unhitch your truck and it be stationary. Okay. It took an hour and a half. Not normal, but we had to be okay with that and keep persevering until we finally figured out all those issues that were happening so that we could finally go to bed. (laughs) So, wow, things like that happen. Not for the faint of heart, then it sounds like. No, I don't think so. I think one of the main things Tyler and I talk about is how this lifestyle is going to grow our character. So, that's what, what I really hope for he and I It's going to grow our relationship, especially because we are completely dependent on each other. There's really nobody else. We, we can ask an RVing neighbor or, you know, someone to help sometimes, but for the most part, it's him and me. We have to figure all these problems out, just him and me. And our boys are watching us. So if we start, you know, fighting, or cussing, or, you know, we start having these like blow ups or something, they're watching us. And that makes a difference too. (laughs) So So, yeah, do you have like a a post office box or a like a mailing address? Like, 
to, to get mail and bills or is everything just online and there's no way to send you something? Like I asked partly for the podcast and partly as somebody who would probably send you a Christmas card this year, maybe if I do those things, we'll see. Uh, right now we have a home base, which is Tyler's parents' house in Kashmir, Washington. So any mail that we don't need straight away, we send to them. Anything that we do want while we're moving around, we ask um, a friend or family member whose house is near where we'll be. And even if it is only for a week, two weeks, that's the address we use for that short period of time. And then we have to change that as we move along. Wow. There's like a certain level of organizational logistics that I feel like you're just kind of always running in the back of your head, you know, the app to tell you here and the, this of that, and I've got to go over here and what are the kids learning? And also where's the mail going to need to be in three weeks from now. So if I order, yeah, that's like, that's a lot. Yeah. Well, we're definitely in the learning process. So, you know, I sell Rodan and Fields, my monthly order shipped out before I could change my address. So it's going back to Sacramento and I have to ask my friend to very graciously send it to my in-laws house because I was an idiot and didn't change my address quick enough. Part of me is like, oh, you know, you're just learning. And the other part of me is like, no, I have to be able to do this properly. <laughs> I mean, it's only been a couple months. So yeah, I think that first part of you is more correct. Give yourself a break. <laughs> I hate making it difficult for somebody else because of my, it's my fault. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So you're still, so I know you do that. You sell Rodan Fields, which is skincare, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> I know that. And you do workout videos, right? Or, or choreograph for exercise. Yeah. Things? I do workout classes for refit. The company's name is refit. Very cool. So you, you supplement a little bit as well as what Tyler does. And then obviously you teach the kids and you seem like you're pretty busy. <laughs> All the more reason. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk randomly. What's your favorite part about living in your RV with your family all the time, full time? One of my favorite parts is that we get to meet a lot of cool people. Some are strange. Some are just cool. So I have this smile on my face because I'm thinking back to some of the neighbors we've had over the last couple of months. And it's just, makes me feel so blessed to have conversations with people I would have never, ever had had I stayed in one place, you know? I mean, just like my brain explodes with so many people we've had conversations, like even deep conversations with, we would never meet. (laughs) We weren't doing this. It's really good for the boys to, to learn how to talk to different kinds of people in different ages. We've had multiple older couples say, I'm so glad your kids are here. I miss my grandkids. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I'm so glad that you had internet and we were able to make this happen. Yeah, thanks. Really fun to share our experiences. Wow, that was really cool. I I learned a lot. Certainly, we've come into a society now where this kind of stuff is possible. But I always think, how long is it possible for? I mean, how long can you be in a trailer and working sporadically and have enough money to survive. I mean, I told James the other day, I said, I wouldn't mind living off the grid if I could live on the grid. I I, I would like to disconnect as much as anybody at times, but I also understand the world we live in now is connected and you can't 
completely disconnect unless you have the means, the financial means to do that. And that's pretty, I mean, I I get why people are not going back to work at restaurants and not going back to work at sucky jobs and minimum wage and all that. I totally get that. But what's the alternative? I mean, is the alternative going on the road and doing some blog and, and making money from, I don't know, ads, Google ads, or I don't know. How do you sustain that? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting. And it, not to say that like the people who are doing, but again, we've talked about privilege. Like you have to have like a nest egg or somewhere soft you can land if it doesn't work out like in-laws, you know, or somewhere, you know, she talked about uh, getting your mail at different places and having family members that'll forward your mail on to where you're going to be. And, you know, so there is a support system. There, There are things that you kind of need. It's, it's very different than, than the necessity driven. I have nowhere to live. And so I'm going to live in my hatchback versus, you know, this will be a grand adventure and my kids will get to see the Grand Canyon in right, person. Right. You know, I mean, like it the is guy a- in the book who lives in a Prius. I'm like, really? Oh, a seriously? Prius? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's I'm like, I now mean, you're pushing it. And I, but I liked in the book where she actually talked about that. There was like one of the places where all the fancy RVs were like in one big circle and then the other, like the trailers were over here. And then like way over there were like the little pre the cars Uh and like the tents and you know, whatever. And so there's, there's, we're humans, right? There's going to be a hierarchical system. And there's, yeah, there was a point where she, I forget which character was in the book that pulls up into one of these areas and realizes that the other vehicles there are very high end motorhomes. And when somebody from one of the high-end motorhomes went to ask her, well, why are you here? What do you, or what do you, what do you, what's your vehicle? And she pointed out this beat up van. They just walked away because they didn't want to talk to her because they were not interested in learning about the nomad life. They were there as they were partying. Recreationally right, traveling exactly. as opposed to survival traveling. Yeah. It's right. a very different thing. So anyways, it's the very large Brown package in the room. We have to talk about Amazon. So yeah. let's talk about Amazon. Okay. <laughs> so the, the book del- delves into this deeply and the movie shows it, but doesn't really talk about it. I mean, that movie skims the surface. She's all smiley. Everybody's yeah, she's happy. Very in the movie. happy. And yeah. they filmed in Amazon. They got permission yeah. to film in Amazon because Amazon was like, okay, but then, you know, they're going to have to make Amazon look good because right. they're filming in Amazon. So, right. but it's not happy. It's it's awful. not. And they, they call them work campers uh, because they're working and they live in campers. Yep. And they have the Amazon started this many, many years ago as just some kind of supplemental program. And it worked so well that they created a whole division of their business to recruit these people and to to get them coming back every year. And it's seasonal. They hire them around the holidays for three months or so. So they hire, hire these people. They often give them either free rent or free space or very reduced rate space for them to plant their their campers so they don't have to pay all, hardly anything in rent. And for three or four months, they work and get whatever the wage is at Amazon, which in the book, I think goes from $7 up to $11, depends. Uh, but the conditions are what's fascinating. And I have friends here who work at Amazon, and I can attest to this because they tell me the conditions are horrendous. And um, in the book, it goes into great detail about that, about the, the harshness. And the other thing is a lot of these people in the book who are taking these jobs are over 50. So they're already not young whippersnappers who are can jump through hoops all day. And it's a very physically, physically demanding and, and boring and repetitive job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And prone to injuries. You know, uh, Linda May 
has an injury because of her, her wrist, you know, from holding the thing at one point she's having dizzy spells and she has to miss a day, of course, not paid, you know, all of these things there's a guy who falls and hits his head and maybe has a concussion, whatever, keep working. Somebody else dies. It's a lot. You're walking, you're walking 15 to 20 miles a day on cement. You're constantly squatting and reaching and squatting and reaching and, and then going up and down steps. And if you slow down, they're there to like, tell you to pick up the pace and like, giant robot thingies that could smush you if you end up in the wrong space. I mean, it's, it's insane. And it sounds awful, awful. awful. And there's training up front where they tell you all these things. They tell you it's going to be physically demanding and you're going to work 12 hour days and you're going to be tired. And they even have free uh, pain reliever dispensers around the plant where you can just get free Tylenol and things because they know you're going to be in pain. Yeah. And a lot of the people who are interviewed in the book who are talking about it, hate it. They're like, this is slave labor. This is thing. I mean, we like the money and it's consistent. We know we can get this job, you know, and do it, which is good because a lot of times we're just hoping, you know, we're going from job to job. And you're well, we like of- the money, but they, but, they have no choice. They're, they don't, right. it's not, they have options. Right. Exactly. And then, but it's so physically wearing on them and it, they're just exhausted. And then the, the promotional things is like, be part of the team and you get to meet friends and live life and have adventure, blah, blah, blah. And it's no, not right. none of that. It's, it's, it's very predatory the way that they go to these RV sales and stuff, these big events and, and coach, you know, try to get the older people to come and work for them. And without benefits, without uh, no, insurance, without anything really no union as you no as union you know. and if, yeah. you, if you even talk about a union they make it very clear in the book that if you talk about a union around amazon then they're gonna dump you there's one guy that she interviews that says at one point he doesn't want to be named because mm-hmm. he knows because he was actually hired full-time at amazon as a as a full-time employee and he says if they find out i'm talking to you they'll fire me yeah so he can't even be named yep so that, you know, and that just, and I, it, it makes me sick because I shop on Amazon all the time. Yeah. Um, and I, it's not like I haven't thought about this before. It's just so damn convenient that I do it. But all this stuff is in the background about, you know, where this product is coming from and who's putting it together and child labor and, you know, uh, the way they treat their employees. And like I said, I, I, I've known people in the last two years, I've, I've known three or four people that went to work for Amazon and the stories are exactly like what's in the book. It's no different than what she's saying in the book. So there's no reason to doubt it. You know, I stick my head in the sand. I have to admit that when I, when I buy something off Amazon, because I know what's going on. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a thing. I definitely know that I spend more on Amazon than I should, you know, should quote unquote should. And I try sometimes with various levels of success to shop other places and to buy local and all of those things. But yeah, the convenience factor, the things showing up at my front door factor is just really hard to beat. So, uh, but yeah, you read these and then you're like, okay, well, maybe I don't need anything from Amazon for a little while, you know, because it definitely hits you. The book talks about the the reason a lot of this stuff is happening is because of our dependence on stuff. And so we all are aware that, especially with Amazon, which makes it so fucking easy to buy anything. It's that we're dependent. And, you know, she talks about, you know, the fact that (laughs) these these workers are not paid very well and all those stuff. And like the the people who are in charge of Amazon make a lot of money. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, girl, girl, 2017, you have no fucking idea how much money (laughs) Jeff Bezos is going to make by the time this movie comes out. And (laughs) I mean, he's yeah. To the moon and back. He's like, no, but he's, it's insane because, and COVID and their 
quarantine that the number of Amazon packages and like this number of stuff, the amount of stuff we were buying in, on Amazon, just insanely increased, not just for me personally, but our society as a whole. And, and, and then you hear about, you know, someone like um, Elon Musk, who the other day, I don't know if you saw the story, they said you could end world hunger in this place if you donate, what was it, $5 billion or something. And then they related what that meant to him as far as his net worth. And it was like, you know, it'd be like $500 for you and me. That's uh-huh. how much money these guys have. And they and they still don't want to pay taxes, which is a whole other topic. But. Yeah, yeah. Eat the rich. Okay. But like we said, since the movie is telling a different story, we don't really get the Amazon aspect. She's at Amazon. She's happy. All the employees are happy. They're all <laughs> laughing in the in the room. You know, Linda May's not there the second time around and she's lonely. But we're never really told why Linda May is not there the second time around, you know? And like, right. it's just... And it's, it's more like to show us that Fran, that Fern, Fran, I don't know who Fran is, that Fern is a little antisocial and she had a friend and then she's not going to make another friend. She's like, nope, I'll just be lonely over here and make a puzzle by myself. So yeah, but they, they clearly, they wanted to film in Amazon. They didn't want to make it political. So they, they really downplayed it. And it would be interesting if they did make a documentary out of this book. Well, you know, what's interesting that you say that Chris, because actually and I lead into something I didn't even you, know I was leading to. You sure did. You are so, you're so, so good. There was a very short, I think it's 16 minutes long documentary called Camper Force. And I'm going to link to it in our show notes, but it was, it was made by Je- Jessica and, oh. and it actually interviews a couple people who the guy in the book, do you remember who fell and hit his head? It's him and his wife. I can't remember their names okay. and their little okay. RV with their little dog. And she's talking to them and she has footage from her secret little camera that she was wearing. Oh. Wow. So like you can see a little bit of the, of the little crazy robot things. Oh, cool. You know, she talks about the predatory manner of them getting recruited and, you know, goes into more detail about how awful they're treated. Is that it, something you can stream? Yeah, it's on YouTube. So I will oh, definitely okay. put it into cool. the thing. Yeah. So, I will watch that. so she, she wrote an article if my if I've got my chronology correct, she wrote an article and then it expanded to a slightly longer think piece, and then the book and the this little mini documentary thing, and then eventually this longer movie, which is you know obviously based on it. So there's a lot of different iterations, and they're all telling you know slightly different aspects. Amber Force from 2017. Okay, I yep. see it. Here. So it's it's interesting. It's totally worthwhile, and that's only 16 minutes long. So I, I highly right, recommend cool. it. You watch that after reading this book and you're like, oh my God, I'm going to just delete my Amazon wish list. Yeah, <laughs> but I have something in my shopping cart right now, so I can't do that. <laughs> you know what? I know it's so bad. I, I'm going to let Ella buy because it's safer. Like she can't, she's not vaccinated yet. I'm not taking her to the store. So right. I have to be like, okay, you're, here's your budget. You can shop on Amazon and I'll okay before, you know, you click the purchase button. It's how she did all of her little holiday shop. She bought me and Matthew both Christmas presents last year. She was okay. so pleased with herself. It was the most adorable thing ever. So, I mean, you know, this is how I look at it. We, you and I are both activists. We both do our own part for, you know, disadvantaged communities. And, and so we can't do everything. Yeah, that's, it's true. We can't but, be perfect. But we can go to the occasional farmer's market or a oh, yeah. fair and buy stuff that's probably better anyways, because it's more unique. So let's and do I, that. I, yo, yo. I definitely make an effort to do that and buy local as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've kind of said most of my, my little ranty pieces about the failings I thought. And again, <laughs> it's a good movie. It's just... 
it's only it's only half the story. So it is. But let's 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 remember that the Amazon portion of the book is not the only way these people find work and the only way that they are treated right. in a predatory manner. There are other jobs that they get. So basically mm -hmm. they travel the country and they follow the jobs. And so certain jobs in certain part of the country, certain time of year. So like the Sierra National Forest gives them work and Amazon gives them work and there's an amusement park that gives them work um, and other things. So all these people have tapped into this workforce. And the beets, the sugar beets, that's a huge sugar beets. thing. That was yeah. interesting, I thought. They, they go I said, totally that. disgusting. Just the work conditions, oh my God. Yeah, the big shovels. And it's a backbreaking work for people who are older. Like it's, And it's, it's like what, for just a month out of the year or something? The month yeah. of October or something? Yeah. Yes. And then you go right from there into into camper force with Amazon. Then you have a little bit of break for the winter time, and then you start up with all the other things. And then, but they're talking about like these are the people who sell concessions at ballparks. These are the people who are going to work the pumpkin patch on the carnivals. Dude, this, and the that's it made me think. How many times have I seen these people and not even noticed? Dude, after I read this book and watched this movie, I I just driving around. We went to Monterey, yes, yesterday. Oh my god, I don't know what day it is. Anyways, and like. I saw all these different campers and RVs as we were driving. And I was like, I wonder if you're a nomad. I wonder if yeah, you're a nomad. Yeah. I wonder. Now I'm seeing them everywhere. And she <laughs> so tells you in the book how to spot them. If you, if you look for the yeah. clues, like foil over the windows or, mm -hmm. you know, satellite or whatever. Yeah. Um, like the, the solar panels up on top right, and stuff. Right. Yeah. It's just fascinating. But I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, this has probably been all around me and I haven't even noticed it. I mean, I don't know how you would notice it if you didn't know, because they just look like regular workers at the fair or wherever, but. Right. And there's a, there's a lot of pride, you know, and I, I found myself wondering, you know, how is when people, sometimes they get proud of something as a defense mechanism because right. that's safer, you know, it's more emotionally helpful. Um, right. I definitely felt that in the book where people were like, yeah, of course, Amazon hires us. We're the best because unlike those whippersnappers, we know the value of a good hard day's work and and we're reliable and blah, 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 you know, and we we like being out here and, you know, our own bootstraps. And you're like, OK, cool. But like, actually, yeah, rah, 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 rah. And but then if you dig down a little bit, you get like Linda May, who's like, yeah, this is great. I like this. I like being on my own. I like having my you know freedom. But I'm also going to buy land in Arizona and build a house so that yeah, someday yeah. I have somewhere to live that's not this. So there was a there was a quote in this book that I, I crinkled the page up so I'd be able to find it. And luckily, I just found it. So she's talking about how everybody's she met seemed kind of cheerful, like what you're talking about. Like, you know, I'm in a terrible situation, but Linda, especially, you know, today's a great day and I'm going to decide today's a great day and not a bad day, blah, blah, blah. So she talks in here about an author named James Rorty, who noted during the Great Depression when he traveled America talking with people forced to seek work on the road. In his 1936 book, Where Life is Better, he was dismayed that so many of his interview subjects seemed so unshakably cheerful. Quote, I encountered nothing in 15,000 miles of travel that disgusted and appalled me so much as this American addiction to make-believe, unquote. I loved that quote, and I just, I, I read it several times. I read it out loud to James. I wrote that I find, one down, too. Yes, uh, I wrote it down, too. Yeah, I just yeah. love it, and I find that that's true when I hear people say, you know, particularly for me when I'm in political conversations or, or something about social justice or whatever, and they're like, Oh, Chris, it's, you know, life is good. And I'm like, no. And I'm the other way. I'm like, so I loved it when he said the Americans obsession with make-believe, which I think is absolutely true. Americans have a hard on for positivity. 
like right. for sure. Right. And you have to have like put a spin on it and be an optimist and blah, blah, blah. Because if you don't, then you're such a downer. No one's going to want to hang out with you. Right. You know, right. like it's unattainable and it feeds actually into like the prosperity gospel bullshit. Like it's a whole thing that right. we have in this country. Even our language, when we say like, oh, are you are you not feeling well? Well, you know, don't get sick. Take care of right. yourself. Don't let right. yourself, you know, blah, 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 blah. and it's like, dude, like sometimes people just get sick. Right. It's, right, not, right. it's not a failure. It's not a moral failing. Exactly. To be sick. But we we see it as a moral failing to be sick, a moral failing to be poor in this country, a moral failing to have less and that it is it's toxic. Yeah. This toxic yeah, positivity I, is a major thing, especially in like the self-help world. And oh, my oh God. yeah. And it's becoming worse now because of social media, which so much is caused by social media. And I get it. Social media can be a very negative place. So I've had people say on my feed and on their own feed that I've seen, oh, don't share news. Don't do this. Just share funny videos of cats and shit like that. And I'm like, I am predisposed to truth because as a gay person who had to fight his whole life to be who he is. I am really sensitive to people who are bullshitting or people who are glossing over reality. I don't think that pointing out reality is negative. I think pointing out reality is helpful and it's truth and it moves us forward. But so many people and now especially are like, I don't want to hear that. I just want to hear happy. I just want to see rainbows and sunshine. And, and I'm like, well, that I hate to say it. I don't hate to say it, but I'll say it, it turns me off. I don't want to see rainbows and sunshine unless it's a nice day and nothing's wrong. And I see rainbows and sun sunshine. I want the truth. I want to talk about truthful things. I want to talk about reality. Yeah. Of course, I'm not living in a van by the river, so it's a little easier for me to do that, I guess. Yeah. It's that Pollyanna thing. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. You might have a cold, but your leg's not broken. Oh, your leg's broken, but at least your <laughs> other leg's not broken. Oh, both legs are broken. At least you got crutches. I mean, it's like, yeah. oh my God, shut up. Yeah. Shut up. Exactly. Anyways, yeah. So, well, I, I'm ready for my sum up thing. There's no Star Trek trivia. <laughs> this time no star trek trivia okay okay there is there is <laughs> not really but kind of okay so obviously there's no overlap of cast because there's very little cast in this movie but the word nomad did tickle my star trek brain Ooh. i was like there was a character there was an important nomad character in star trek so this is the quote i am nomad i am perfect that which is imperfect must be sterilized because there was the episode. I love the, that episode. The changeling. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, yep. It's from the original series. The nomad the was like. The robot that you can't see the wire, yes. but it's hovering around. Yes. Yes. The little angry spaceship. When Ella watched this episode with me years ago when she was really little, she called it the angry spaceship or the naughty spaceship. That's what it was. It was the naughty spaceship nomad. <laughs> This is one of the times it's very, it's like a famous trope thing where Kirk basically does verbal jujitsu and makes the computer explode itself. And right, right, literally right. one of those episodes where he like basically convinces the computer that it's crazy. And then it's like, ah, and then it explodes. He also manage- does that in the episode with, with Harry Mudd, where he has all the robots mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and they, they talk so much to the female robots that they short circuit. <laughs> he does that with Volve. I think they do that with like the children of Vol. I think they do that with. It's a trope through science fiction. Oh my God. It's a major thing. Kirk is real good at it too. Yeah. 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 So anyways, there it is. The changeling nomad. And that changeling, that robot is, I am nomad. It has that real robotic voice. Yes. Yes, he does. (laughs) 
Uh, are you ready to sum up, Chris? Was this movie worth your time? Was this book worth your time? Yeah, both absolutely worth my worth my time, your time. The movie's brilliant. Don't take what how we're comparing the book to the movie to say that the movie is not worth it on its own. It's definitely worth it on its own. Uh, definitely see it. And the book, definitely, if you want to learn about all this stuff, read the book. I think they're both excellent. I agree. I say, of course, the book and the movie do different things. In the book, the focus is on the people. And in the, the movie, the focus is on one woman's journey through grief. And I think that those are both really important stories, but they're different, important, you know, for my money, I'd say everyone needs to read this book because of the politics, because of the issues, because of the fear, because we do need to remember that Amazon is only one choice when it comes to shopping and we can choose to shop in other places, at least sometimes. I think that we need to be thinking about our futures and be darn glad for the security that we have or hope to have. And if you don't already have a 401k, if you're not already putting money away for do it. a rainy day and for your retirement or whatever, do it. There's a zillion podcasts that'll explain how to do it. That is a thing that we should do. And this book is a good reminder of that. And everybody should read this book, especially in November. I feel like this is like the perfect book to read as you're getting ready for Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, yeah. I do think the movie is wonderful and moving and deserves to be seen. Frances McDormand is really great. The cinematography is good. There is no music for the first 15 minutes of this movie. It is just the natural set and it is really good. The, the movie is yes. very well made. It deserves its awards. If you're going to only do one, Thing. If you're like, nope, time is limited, I say the book, but that's me. I agree. Ah, well, Chris, I am thankful for you. I am grateful for you. Oh, yeah. I'm thankful for you too, dear, yeah. every day. Now you just say that because I said it first. I, I knew you were going to say that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, that's, um, I, I thought about that over and over while I was reading the book and the movie, how thankful I am for what I have. Uh, I, I do that all the time. And it's important that we we remain thankful for what we've got, regardless of what level that is. Thank you so much, Chris, for, for talking. So a little bit more of a bummer book for than last time. But, you know, hey, we can't they can't all be. No, I really wanted to talk about this book and this movie. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, this is really good. And you'll have to come back and we'll we'll, we'll pick something more uplifting because I'm sorry, but Arrival was really good, but it was also really sad. So yeah, I think true. We, and Brokeback Mountain was really sad. We're like <laughs> three for three. We are. We need something more upbeat next time. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's a deal.